0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. And also, Gen Con.
0: So can the auspicious moment is upon us. I've been talking about Feng Shui 2 for nearly a year now.
1: The Kickstarter date approacheth.
0: Yes, we'll be locking and loading on Wednesday, September 17th at 8pm.
1: With the usual one-month window?
0: Yeah, the campaign will run until Friday, October 17th. So whether you're an early adopter or a last-minute roll under the descending blast door as the bullets fly type, the fine team at Atlas Games is ready for you.
1: And for role-players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is.
0: It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolet heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new
1: edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood-spattered gunplay, it features the Key War.
0: Yes, the players uh, fight across key time periods to control key sites, of geomantic power and thus history itself.
1: And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouser?
0: I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption?
1: I am nothing if not an everyday hero. Well, look
0: out, because there's a cyborg gorilla headed this way.
1: People be glad to finally jump on this. You've been whipping them into a froth on the social media.
0: I've never had so much excitement around a project in development before, so it's not about whether we'll do it, but how much we and the backers together can use the funding process to awesome it up.
1: So the question is, how amazing a realization of feng shui can you make it? And the answer starts on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.
0: When the gun goes off, rush to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, action movie role-playing, or Robin D. Laws. So, hey, Ken. It is, in our timeline, the Wednesday after Gen Con. Our brains are both mushy. How mushy on the sclera-McKinney brain mushiness index is your brain at this point?
1: Well, Robin, the sclera-McKinney brain mushiness index tops out at 115 because it was created uh, based on the brain mushiness of sclera after listening to McKinney explain brain mushiness (laughs) over and over and over. It it used to work like Scoville units. It
0: used to be 115,000. Yeah. But then it was pointed out that a brain mushiness didn't have to be like Cinnabar damage. So they, and that, I think that was part of the conversation that, that led to that.
1: I, th- I think Cinnabar is discussed whenever brain mushiness is discussed by scientists, yes. So on a scale of 0 to 115. On a scale of 0 to 115, my brain mushiness has uh, rebounded down from 168, which it was right after Gen <laughs> Con, to uh, a mere oh let's see uh i I don't actually have the current uh software but i would i would self diagnose at around seventy two give or take maybe maybe down in the in the upper sixties if i'm uh really good i I tried reading a book about uh arthurian uh chronology that I got back from Gen Con, and it turned out what instead I could do was watch MST3K. So that's <laughs> that's about where I am right now. <laughs> yes, you just you just read it as being Arthur blah 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 blah, 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 blah Arthur blah, far, blah 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 blah
0: blah. blah. Uh, well, I, I'm still at 168 out of 115 because well you went
1: through you went through the Toronto Film Festival's 36 Chambers of Shaolin
0: uh, right afterward. Yeah, so you
1: had double double mushy
0: double mushy. Yeah, yesterday was the day where the program book day for the Toronto International Film. Festival arrives, and you get to sit down and start uh, the extremely complicated process of choosing which, uh, in my case, 45 out of the 300 or so featured films they have on offer you want to see. As many people asked at Gen Con, yes, indeed, uh, my wife Valerie and I are going to do at least one last hurrah at the festival, although the prices for people in our enthusiasm bracket were wildly jacked up. Uh, We can talk about this later when I finally review the films after the festival. But Mm -hmm. uh, we decided uh, since last year was kind of a tough year for us uh, personally that we did not want that to be our last festival. So we've bitten the bullet. We'll be reining in some expenses. I sold some sealed Legends packs that I had filed away for a rainy day. And we'll be using that to fund uh, what hopefully won't be our last, but might be our last, TIFF. But that is getting ahead of ourselves in the travel advisory sector because we're here to talk about Gen Con. Gen Con 2014. Uh, It was a whirlwind. It was a source of brain mushiness. Uh, I had to enter an ego compression chamber when I re-entered the country, essential to all returnees to Canada after uh, having all sorts of wonderful things happen to them over a four to five day period. Ken, normally I guess we start off with our detached, objective description of who won the Diana Jones Award on the Wednesday night, but for reasons uh, podcast listeners may already be aware of, that uh, level of distance is not possible this time.
1: No, it is not, because as our more alert uh, listeners, or perhaps more clued in to the adventure gaming sector listeners know, I won the Diana Jones Award for my series pitched Moscow station, which is part <laughs> of Hillfolk, a uh, game uh, using the drama system which, I forget who designed that. It was, uh, was it Crane? Uh, was that?
0: Although, yeah, weirdly enough, uh, you had a small contribution to an award-winning project, but did not bound up onto the stage this time.
1: Well, it's the DJs. It's a different uh, vibe from different the Different vibe. You know how it is. Yeah, I figured that was Luke's moment.
0: So, yes, I I'm, was extremely grateful and a little bit uh, surprised, since I might know, uh, in other years, I know a little bit of the inner workings of this mysterious cabal, and so I was very pleasantly surprised to have my name called and get up on stage and say a few words of which only the inner ring of people actually could make out given the vagaries of the sound system at Cadillac Ranch where the awards are currently given and many beverages are imbibed. But it's uh, always sort of a surreal experience where time is both elongated and truncated and afterwards, uh, someone on Facebook commented that it was very cool to have people chanting my name, and I went, oh yeah, I remember that! Because <laughs> Between the chanting and then looking at the Facebook comment, I for- forgot that that happened, but of course, I'm glad I was reminded, and that's extraordinarily touching, and I have always kind of uh, been thinking between last Gen Con when Hill Folk debuted and this one, how is it doing? How is it getting out into the bloodstream of gamerdon? Of course, it's one thing to have something that you put out and people admire it and they think it's cool and then it, they don't uh, play it or thinking about it much later and uh, since this is a way of playing that I really hope people get into I was very gratified to not only see that the Dinah Jones committee awarded it this very prestigious Perspex Pyramid but also that people have been coming to me throughout the show and saying that they've actually been playing it and also it sold very well Yes, at, the, it did. at the booth and in fact uh, sold out, which is more than it did last year. We had more copies last year, but you don't uh, normally expect the thing you had last year to uh, sell out the, the following year. And that only happens if people are still talking about it and playing it and that they want to check it
1: out. So that
0: was also extremely
1: gratifying. And on the uh, sort of Neutral uh, analysis note: Because, as uh, despite my self-aggrandizement, my contribution was merely decorative. It was not fundamental or structural in any way. I I liked that it won, not just because my good buddy Robin won uh, the Diana Jones Award, but also because Hillfolk opens the door for more kinds of role playing in more kinds of stories than any other product has since D and D. Right? I mean, it's it's the thing that makes dramatic role-playing, functional and mechanical. And it may not be the last system we ever get for dramatic role-playing, but it's the first system we ever got for dramatic role-playing. And that, you know, it's kind of startling that uh, 40 years into into the development of the genre, we've only just now gotten a system that can express a love triangle, for example,
0: well, doesn't Emily Carr Boss? Doesn't one of her romance series have a love triangle? That, that, that's true, but
1: it's very specifically
0: tuned to right. just do exactly that, rather than have that be one of many things.
1: Yes, and and admittedly, if you are second behind Emily Carr Boss, you are ahead of everybody else. Still, that is
0: no shabby company, which is yeah, why no, we if, have if her. It's do you a and Emily kitchen. up
1: there on the tip of the perspex pyramid—that's a good place to be. But yeah, uh, the the fact that it opens up that whole. That That whole area of emotional interplay and emotional interaction, not even so much emotional combat but emotional contrast as as fertile space for gaming as a way to build the sort of uh, dynastic stories that you see not just on HBO but also going back to like uh, Icelandic sagas and whatnot uh, these are found foundational elements of not just Western literature but of the literature that we 've been borrowing for our hobby since 1940 that's part of what goes into Tolkien is part of what goes into Robert E. Howard. It doesn't so much go into Lovecraft because very few people in Lovecraft have uh, emotional desires that they can understand. But most of the foundational texts of our hobby also draw on these on these matters and it's, it's delightful to be able to see, you know, finally that they can be expressed mechanically and in game and then bring in not just the, the gamer cognoscenti but also people who you know, value those sorts of stories over our sorts of stabby detective stories. Uh, I think you've been mentioning that theater people tend to really glom onto hill folk and and love the drama system a whole lot because it hits them where they live and it, and it wakes up the kind of energy that they have when they're thinking creatively about story.
0: Yeah. I'm always interested to see what actors do when they get a hold of it, because they will either go, Oh, Hey, I know what this is or, Oh geez, this is my day job. So, uh, so far it's been mostly eight though, which is, uh, which is great. So yeah, I had the the high class problem of having my voice blown out even more by the Diana mm-hmm. Jones Awards than usual because uh, when you cluster that many gaming industry folk together in one bar and you have to shout over each other to be heard, you wind up uh, wrecking your vocal cords before the game e- or before the show even begins. And of course, since I had the high class problem of. Uh, Saying uh, thank you to people who were congratulating me—that was uh, lovely. I will also just add that uh, Peter Adkison probably hugs better than you. I don't think you—you oh, yeah. re- haven't I think really depends. been hugged. True. You've gotten a There's like twelve different stages to it. It's really uh, very elaborate and quite lovely. So uh,
1: yeah, it's a—it's—it's it's sort of a rhythmic Roshan dance of hugging, full of, of complexity and love.
0: So that was our uh, night before the show began, and I guess that takes us to the huge rush of people that stampeded the hall on the Thursday and even though there were uh, big chunks of those stampeders were headed toward the Pathfinder booth to get the new Pathfindery goodness and to the Fantasy Flight booth to get the new show-only exclusive premium uh, what's-its and thingies. I think it was a Star Star Wars what's-it thingy. There were a lot of people also coming by the Palgrain booth right away to drop their change. And it's been interesting to see over the 20 years or so that I've been going as people have grown up in the hobby and now largely have more exposable (laughs) exposable and disposable income (laughs) uh, to drop that their uh, patterns have changed a lot. So Thursdays, when I first started coming, you would have a lot of people would come up to the booth with a little notepad, by which I mean a piece of paper connected by spiral binding kids and with a little sort of often with a mini golf style pencil would be writing down everything that they wanted and the prices so that they could calculate by the end of the show, how much if they ate fewer hot dogs, what they would able to buy on the last Sunday. And then the last mm-hmm. Sunday would always be a uh, buying frenzy. And then Friday would kind of perk up a bit from, Thursday and then Saturday would drop a bit. Well, now it's changed uh, quite enormously in so far as Thursday is a really great sales day. Often Friday drops a bit, although I don't think it did for Pelgrane. And then Saturday is huge again. And now uh, Sunday, which used to have a big buying frenzy, is kind of quiet as people uh, check out of their rooms and are getting ready to go to the airport after they squeeze the last little uh, bit of uh, gaming in. Did you notice any difference in the? Uh, flow at the booth this year as compared to other years?
1: At the booth, I think that like you, I noticed that the Friday was relatively quiet, but it was only relatively compared to Thursday and Saturday. Sunday, I think a lot of the reason that we didn't see the same level of crush at the booth is we'd sold out of a lot of stuff by Sunday. And so people who were wanting, you know, a a given product, a lot of times they will come by, they'll get that product and they'll say, well, while I'm standing here, I might as well give you more money uh, this, which is something that we encourage very much at, at Pograin
0: With, with our sinister four for three deal.
1: Exactly. Our brilliantly sinister four for three deal. And so I think that a lot of our, our, our sort of experiential Sunday tail off is caused because we were visibly running out of stuff. And we had a lot of, um, Things that uh, that were really ideal upsellers for that four to three deal that that went early because they were they were small and and perfectly formed, and I th- I think that may have been uh, I think on Sunday though you're probably right that there was a general exhalation of energy and relief at the show, uh, and I and that may have just been because we had a lot of that there was a lot of one day sales of Saturday passes. Or something like that. But I I found it a little easier to walk around on the floor on Sunday, for example. But Saturday was, was just inhumanly high. And so I don't know how much of that seeming lightness on Sunday is caused just by it being right after that really crazily heavy Saturday.
0: I, I think we could definitely have sold more things had we had things to sell. I have Eight of my projects sold out at the table. And the, now there's always like a, some weirdo cases like... Skullduggery, which does not overall sell that well for Pelgrane and was never intended to, it's just sort of a a placeholder to present the Dying Earth rules set in a more streamlined way in a standalone, license-free fashion, so that Simon always has a version of that in print, no matter what happens to the Dying Earth license itself. But at conventions, it, it always sells out at Gen Con, I think because it's hard to find, and just because it has an enticing cover, and if I'm there, I have a good pitch for it. And so, in a way, it kind of falls into the category of the, the rarity that isn't stocked really well in retail. And so, it's the kind of thing that the Cognoscenti are there to uh, find at Gen Con, the stuff they can't find other places. But also, uh, not only did my new game from this year, The Guy in Reach RPG, it sold out shortly after we pitched it in the middle of the Ken and Robin Live podcast but Hill uh, Hillfolk sold out on the Sunday, and Trail of Cthulhu sold out. It's not supposed to do that. Yes,
1: that's, a, that's supposed to be the evergreen that never goes anywhere that we have. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a six-year-old game. I mean, by now, in theory, everyone who wanted it should already have bought it, although I think that we are seeing the second wave come, our, our first wave in, you know, 2000, after... Uh, esoteric and and Trail of Cthulhu sort of introduced Gumshoe to people, and then we would have at the booth and ev- everywhere else there would be people coming up and saying, "What is Gumshoe? What is Trail of Cthulhu? What's how is that different from the thing that I'm already doing?" And that went on for two or three years, and then it sort of stopped happening for another couple of years, and we figured, well, that's it. We've we've saturated. Yeah, the question the was not
0: what is Gumshoe, but what is this new Gumshoe thing?
1: Yes, and what is next for Gumshoe, and and how, and then do I want this or that? And and then, at this show, we started getting, tell us about Gumshoe, what's Gumshoe, what's Trail of Cthulhu, how is it? It was like it was 2009 or 2010, and I think what's happened is that first wave of people have brought enough people into their game groups, or the, or the word on the street has penetrated into enough streets, that now we're getting the next wave of interest that was caused by the first wave of interest, which is gratifying on a lot of levels, because it says uh, Gumshoe and Trail of Cthulhu really are... Here to stay because they're capable of selling themselves to people who don't know that they want to buy them yet.
0: Right. And it's gone from that crazy thing with that weirdo concept that causes cognitive dissonance, uh, which it definitely was when terrace and even when Trail first came out, to mm-hmm. that thing I've heard a lot of people play yeah. and therefore has a certain amount of credibility behind it. Um, also, the reason that Palgrain brought in about 15% more than it did in the previous year is that there were 15% more people at the show. There was a yeah. weird correlation on there. <laughs> of course, it would be even higher if that uptick in uh, interest and uh, attendance had not played merry havoc with the formula that Kat and Simon use when they decide how many books to bring with the show. So, they'll have to go back to a, a rational exuberance next year, I guess, because who knows what will happen. I mean, I thought that we had already reached capacity in the city of Indy in f- terms of people coming from out of town to stay. But then I heard on the plan, I heard a bunch of people talking about how they were now taking advantage of Airbnb and how they had to take places that were further away because the ones really close to the convention center were priced at a really high premium rate so it may be that the good residents of indianapolis have solved the hotel capacity problem to some extent by billeting the troops as it were yes. and that's what makes it possible for way more people than actually fit in all of those hotels to still make it to the show
1: well gamers are famous for being able to stack themselves like cordwood in in hotel rooms and i think that uh there are uh, indianapolis keeps building more hotels in that second ring, right around the the city center, where we are, and so there's uh, an increase in that as well as, like you say, Airbnb opening up new things that are different from the airport hotels or the or the other hotels that are in the farther outer ring, which GenCon has had to open up earlier and earlier each year. But if you look at the numbers, I mean, GenCon has basically been increasing. You know, it's it's it doubled in 10 years. So that would be a 10% growth each year uh, by the numbers. And then over the last two or three years, it has been going up, as you say, by 15% or so. Uh, the, the last year was a little, almost 50,000. This year was over 56,000. So that's a increase of 7,000, which is uh, not trivial in that, you know, it's the size of, of whole conventions elsewhere <laughs> is our increase. Yes. I was at uh, the First Exposure Room, briefly, which is run by the gifted Vinny uh, Salzillo and Avenel Wing and Darren Watts of Double Exposure, which is a convention grouping out there in the East Coast. They run Dexcon, they run Dreamation, they run the glorious Metatopia. And the First Exposure is a thing where they allow uh, game designers to playtest their games in front of Gen Con attendees. I dropped in there Saturday afternoon and... Vinny told me that they'd already had two thousand individual people run through just first exposure. He says, so basically first exposure is bigger than Dexcon now, which is the biggest <laughs> convention in new jersey so it's it's just amazing there's there's nothing but depth to this show and i- I guess it was probably about two thousand and one that I realized that Gen Con was a bigger show than I could experience uh by now, Gen Con has. And this is something that I noticed. GenCon has a bigger pro community than I can experience. It's not just I, you know. Oh man, I I didn't get to talk enough with Ed Bolmi. This is oh man, I barely I di- I didn't see half the people that I know were here that I would have. There are
0: another ten new Ed Bolmis who you don't
1: even know exactly now. at at, an, at another show. I mean, um, for for example, Brian and Gwen Callahan from the HP Lovecraft uh, Film Festival were out here selling. Uh, Cthulhu merchandise at any other show in existence obviously I would have been stapled to their side at this I literally didn't see them I didn't see their booth even because not only were we so slammed at the Pelgrion booth the after show experience is so chock full of people that you want to spend hours and hours drinking with
0: Uh, well I think we need to more closely examine this question of how possibly our hobby can be dying given this explosive growth but let's do that after this commercial message Hey, Ken, have you heard of Shotguns v. Cthulhu, the pulse-pounding collection of action-packed Lovecraftian tales from Stoneskin Press?
1: I have, because I have a story in it and you edited it. Of course you do, because that was a rhetorical question for marketing purposes. Would you be asking because Pelgrane Press, Stone Skin's mothership company, has a special deal on Shotguns v. Cthulhu until September 1st?
0: Another rhetorical question, but I'll allow it. Yes, until September 1st, if you go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a hard copy of Shotguns v. Cthulhu with all of its icker spattered madness you get not only an immediate ebook download as is pelgrane's won't as is pelgrane's won't indeed you also get an immediate ebook download of schemers would that also be a stoneskin
1: press anthology edited by you that's less rhetorical question but a leading one but the answer is again yes would this genre-spanning anthology veritably drip with tales of trickery, subversion, and betrayal?
0: It not only would, but does, from such authors as Ekaterina
1: Sidia, Jesse Bullington, and Tobias Pacal. A fine accompaniment, then, to shotgun selection of fear, suspense, and bloodshed from writers including Scott Glancy, Dennis Detwiller, and Dave Gross.
0: To get the special ebook Schemers bonus deal, just go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a print edition of Shotguns v Cthulhu as you normally would.
1: No coupon code or tricky link required. Will it expire on September 1st, 2014?
0: Just as sure as a Glock toting Shoggoth is looming up behind you. You're joking, right? I wish I was, Ken. I wish I was. <laughs> And we're back to further think through the question of the renaissance of adventure gaming that we currently find ourselves in. that I think it's getting harder and harder to argue. Although I think some people still like to stick to this perception that we are uh, some uh, dinky little dying hobby whose best days are behind it. Just as geekery is going mainstream, gaming geekery is going mainstream big time. And you know, even when we're teasing our waiter in the celebratory post-show dinner and ask him what his favorite hobby game is. He actually has one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He had his, and his favorite, we asked him what his favorite tabletop game was and it wasn't, you know, risk or something. It was like a real inner ring, title. He, he chose uh, Last Night on Earth, which is a zombie adventure game, and it's not even the best-selling zombie adventure game. It's not even the most famous zombie adventure game. I mean, he he, he had a favorite that was something that you wouldn't have thought someone who uh, was working the restaurant at Gen Con as opposed to crushing the floor at Gen Con would have had. So, it, yeah, the, the, the walls have well and truly come down, I think, around that game space.
0: Even a few years ago, if you were just a role-playing fan in particular, you can kind of go, Oh well, all these other sectors of hobby gaming are doing well, but they don't really count because I don't, you know, I don't care so much about the big $100 board games or collectible cards or any of these other things, but now we're also in what is very clearly a role-playing renaissance as well, and that is uh, very much because of Kickstarter that the ability to connect to people who really find it worthwhile to contribute to dream projects in a way that the old uh, and still extant, but the older three-tier model never allowed people to do. Now, it's less about at Gen Con, what is your big new release for the show, but what is the thing that you managed to ship to your backers just before you left and have at your booth? Mm -hmm. So you can now go and see the... Incredible pair of beautiful doorstops that is the guide to Glorantha, or you can have the experience that we had at the Ennies where all of last year's big uh, Kickstarter projects entered the Thunderdome to do uh, battle with each other. And it's clear that role-playing never went away. It's just that the way of getting role-playing games and new exciting role-playing games into the hands of people who wanted to play them had kind of uh, frayed until this uh, new mechanism came around.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really uh, makes me look terribly, terribly smart when <laughs> I as was As saying, so many things do. Yeah, it, it, as virtually every single experience uh, literary or otherwise does. Um, at, when I was saying that the real problem with role-playing was the distribution model had shut down. That The distributors, but quite sensibly, didn't want to bother with something that had a smaller turn rate than card games, and therefore, there was no point in keeping them around. With board games, as you note, the, the margin on a given product is higher, so that keeps them in. Also, board games had a a, a big uh, footprint coming in with Catan and with other uh, um, open door-opening products uh, that role-playing didn't have. Right, and they
0: also lo- allow the alternate retail model of the game cafe. I mean, uh, right. just within walking distance of my house, there are four thriving game cafes so you know it's just uh you know it's not starbucks yet but it's uh that's uh, and i think we're sort of ground zero for that we have some really innovative people who were doing that back when it seemed crazy but it's it's spreading up all over now and uh, you know there's no uh, reason except for the somewhat messier physical presentation why uh, role-playing gaming can't also happen at game cafes and that game cafes can't uh, sell role playing game books to people the way
1: they are selling cards and board games yeah the um the the stores that have survived the darwinian shakeout of the d20 bust and the and the distributor bust have proven themselves i mean the average gaming store that i walk into is vastly better than the average gaming store in the sense of better run better selection cleaner Less horrible looking than the average game store I was walking into. Lower ferret percentage. Yes, the the ferrets are are both uh, more neatly groomed and somewhere besides the game store. Yeah, the in the in the late nineties uh, when I was doing this you know, going to a lot of uh, game stores and whatnot, they were all terrible or mostly all terrible. And now they're mostly all clean and well lit and and well run. And I think that that's the Darwinian pressure has pulled those guys through simultaneously. As you note, Kickstarter has created a, a separate delivery mechanism, which is what we've needed. I think PDFs do the same thing the fact that you can carry around an entire gaming library on your on your, on your your tablet or your laptop is a huge differential because even if you just bought it as part of a bundle or you bought it as a thing that you never look at, you might look at it. And might has always been a strong converter for us. And the other thing that I think is different now is that the Pokemon generation has come of age. The kids who grew up playing Pokemon and watching Pokemon and playing the little card game back at the turn of the century are now they, – they got – they've got jobs, they've got paper outs, they're in, they've got college stipends to blow on gaming and they're all coming out to shows. The conventions themselves are also another alternate distribution model. I think conventions blew up because the internet creates a desire for physical meetups amongst the people that you didn't even know existed. And you're like, oh, you're a fellow guy who likes train games, let's go to the train game con. You're a, you're a, a girl who likes uh, fate, let's go to a role-playing game convention and play fate. And, the desire that the creation of the virtual community has led to coalescence into physical community. And I think it's not a coincidence that as going online and talking to people becomes normal, as opposed to weird, we see a lot more of those people uh, by which I mean, people, you know, who are young and, and interesting coming out to, to game conventions. And so the, not only the, the shrinking of our hobby that people decry, but also the graying of our hobby that people used to talk about, becomes less and less relevant because it turns out, you know, young nerds are much like young nerds everywhere. They want to get together and and game face-to-face and it's just easier and easier and easier to find out where you can do that and to go do it, whether it's a cafe or a convention in your area.
0: And I think players from the first or second generation uh, waves of role playing sort of have a fear that uh, well sure the Pokemon kids will come along but they'll only be interested in dumb games that everybody plays uh, and of course there's levels of uh, uh, analysis <laughs> to to uh, extract from that sentence but you know I heard a, a couple of uh, guys who were nearly young enough to be my kids if I had any kids and they were very excited about uh, how they were going to use their 100 word uh, descriptions to uh, get the most out of their hero quest characters so they were uh, into a uh, a hipster game if i do say so myself and one that is uh, on a resurgence because moon design is uh, suddenly poking up and rejoining the uh, rest of the gaming stream but you know you have to drill kind of deep to find that still. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to wreck the spell by going hero quest. I designed hero quest. I just wanted to be, thanks uh, grandpa. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, that was, uh, that was uh, very exciting. So I just let them stand there and buy their gumshoe stuff.
1: So, right. And, and anyone who's ever been spending time around the, the indie, uh, gaming scene knows that it's full of, uh, 20 somethings and early 30 somethings. It's, it's tailing edge gen X and leading edge millennials, that mostly populate that, both in the design space and the gaming space. So any notion that uh, today's young kids brought up at Pokemon are only going to play terrible games is, it's idiotic, uh, because we were all brought up on simple entry-level games. It's just that this simple entry-level game went directly into our hobby, whereas for me, being brought up on risk might might never have led me to, to, to role-playing games.
0: Right, and we're also seeing uh, gradually, but slowly and surely every year, that the Demographics of the people going to Gen Con uh, more closely matching the general demographics yeah. of uh, America or even the, the Western world. So I saw more non pasty uh, colored gamers this time than ever, and that's uh, really delightful. And uh, having those people join uh, not just the hobby, but the industry and uh, Uh, you know, bring their perspectives to it is uh, enormously exciting because you don't want to feel that you are in sort of some sort of demographic uh, bubble, particularly the one that's diminishing. And uh, we are seeing uh, more uh, women than ever and women throughout the age uh, band as well. So that's also, I think, augurs very well for our future because, of course, if we really want to increase the number of gamers as if that's something we could do as opposed to just leave <laughs> up to general social trends and make ourselves available to everybody that achieving gender parity, of course, will enormously increase the size of the hobby and, uh, again, open us up to new perspectives and ways of seeing the world and seeing the world through gaming.
1: Yeah, the I forget why I was reading it, but it was something that was an analyzing not just gaming, but all nerd conventions. So like your comic cons and your um, uh, fan expos and, and c 2 C2E2 and things like that, all of your whole sort of nerd conventions as a, as a market sector. And they, first of all, they pointed out that that market sector is like a billion dollars a year or more. I I remember it was in the billions and the probably the low billions, but that's not trivial. That's not nothing. And then it talked, it sort of broke them out as to what shows they go to. And gaming was not, you know, the number one sec you know, sector, but it was non-trivial, it was like a 25% of people who go to those shows go uh, for gaming or they go for some gaming-based experience. And the interesting thing about that uh, batch of breakouts was that they had it broken out by by age range and below a certain age range, and I forget if it was below 30 or below 35, half of the people going to the conventions were female, right? That. Gender parity has been achieved, and the and if you know the only reason it doesn 't look like it ha- hasn 't been achieved is if people robbins in my age are still out there cluttering up all the numbers but if you if you just look at the people who are going to conventions and then talking to each other because young people never go anywhere to talk to old people that 's not how young people work and and so if If you look at the at the crowds that are self selecting at Gen Con or at any other convention. All they're seeing is gender parity. We're invisible to them, us uh, old pasty fogies, except for as people to to trade uh, money for gumshoe products perhaps, or maybe at a panel where we can uh, sort of um, uh, impart uh, the wisdom of the elders uh, to those who are interested.
0: Right. If anything, Gen Con, of course, will be behind the curve on that demographic shift because you have to be older to afford what is a pretty expensive vacation if you do not live in the indie area. And so uh, you you mentioned Fan Expo, which is the big uh, multi-track media show that is held in uh, Toronto just before or on the Labor Day weekend. And uh, it used to be a pretty uh, pokey thing, the gaming track in particular, and now it's the fourth largest nerd show in north america it's gotten quite huge and huge for gaming too right you were uh there last year and we had a hall of at least 100 people maybe even 200 for the game yeah. master workshop uh, which of course makes it harder for me to wriggle out of uh the efforts of the gaming track organizer justin maharab who is in my gaming group i i <laughs> when, when you're pulling in that kind of numbers and it's within walking distance of my house i have to go and Uh, make my appearance and uh, give my plaver. But if you look at those crowds, they're much younger uh, because you, they're pulling from the greater Toronto area. You don't have to book a hotel to go. The actual prices are, are not cheap certainly, but they're within the range of somebody who really loves this stuff to go and do it. If they save up a bit and they don't have to Buy a plane ticket or drive a huge distance and then stay in a hotel. So,
1: well, I mean, Indianapolis also draws from a pretty. I mean, there's a lot of cities within easy driving distance of Indianapolis. I mean, Chicago, obviously. Uh, I think that if you look at the number of right, Chicago, if, if
0: you're driving from Chicago, you got to pay yeah, for a hotel if you're going to do more than a right, day, right? Yeah, and so that, but it's local shows that have less of that visiting contingent who are coming from all over who reflect the real demographic of our audience now. And, and Gen Mm -hmm. Con is sort of different in that it's more expensive to come and stay. And so you get people who are older and, and uh, by definition have the money to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think that as uh, companies begin to look over and, and see what a read pop has done with, with its shows and, and the other companies that that throw these professionally and look at Gen Con, which is uh, certainly doing all right uh, on a corporate level after the the scare caused by the the star Wars nonsense. Um, But you know, Gen Con is, is back uh, in spades and and doing great. And you just have to look at that segment and say, Oh, I'm a a rich guy who knows a guy who has a stadium. I should be able to throw one of these and make some money at it. And we're going to see people competing for the dollars of these, of these con attendees And that's only going to be for the benefit of our field because there's going to be more places people can game and more places people can hear more about uh, the things that we make.
0: So does this uh, segue us into a discussion of the Ennies? I think uh, Eric Mona at at the end of the evening, I think, uh, gave us our segue by proclaiming that this is a a new role-playing renaissance. And I think that uh, from the size of the audience and the quality of the stuff being produced and just the jaw-dropping ambition of some of the projects that... uh, they uh, you know that that's in- in- inarguable that uh, we're living in a a second golden age. do you have a as a taxonomist of uh, creative waves have you come up with a term for this yet?
1: well i've I've long said I mean since 2004 at, at the earlier at the at the latest, I've been saying that we're in a new golden age of of role-playing game design and maybe we're in the first true golden age of role-playing game design because with uh, the previous periods, there would be four or five top of the line designs that you could look at and be pretty much aware of what was going on in the design space. Now, you probably need to know well 20 games to feel like you're in the know in terms of what the current uh, design landscape looks like. I, you know, I I I think that one of the interesting things is that this golden age of design, you know, either by coincidence or possibly to some degree has helped draw this this, this renaissance of, of audience. Um, obviously, there's larger demographic trends that we're talking about and larger social trends. The fact that everyone in the universe now knows what hit points mean uh, can't hurt us. But I think that to, to some extent, what you were talking about, the diversity of creators and the diversity of interests, types of games being played has had some kind of knock on effect. I, I think we're still in that first or in in that wave that began, you know, to sort of, uh, as, as a design wave, maybe you can start it around 2002. But when it got enough um, momentum behind it, maybe 2004, we're still in that. I think that there's nothing wrong with saying that our, our renaissance has been lasting a decade. Most renaissances last culturally around 20 years. So maybe we're only halfway through our golden age of role-playing game design.
0: And it just naturally makes sense that if we have more experiences that we can offer people, that there will be more people who will be interested in you know, it, yeah. right? If you are the sort of person who is interested in, say, Steal Away Jordan, but not interested in Pathfinder. Well, obviously, before you reach the point in the development of our uh, hobby where there's anything like Steal Away Jordan, you're going to play, uh, you know, first edition or second edition D&D and sort of get a sense of it and go, okay, well, I see why other people like that, but now there are so many more different ways of playing, and I think we're moving toward... Uh, in the design space in general, something that gets people playing faster and more easily, and therefore keeps more of the sort of fence sitters who, you know, might have been longtime hobby gaming enthusiasts if there hadn't been so much homework up front in creating a D&D character. And that's, you know, something that I've tried to carry through with uh, the new Feng Shui, and that even as we're developing Gumshoe, we're making that what was already dead simple compared compared to classic crunchy games uh, making it simpler and simpler to get to play. And that uh, seems like an obvious thing now that we're saying it and doing it, but it certainly wasn't an obvious thing at the time that the absolutely most vocal people who got into it and who you heard from a lot were the ones who enjoyed doing all of that homework. But what percentage of people who didn't want to have a big preamble before they started the actual experience and play Uh, were we losing? And so now you still have the very crunchy games to bring in uh, the the crunch heads who really want to dig into the details of a setting and really want that uh, gnarly uh, uh, geek texture. And then you've got people who uh, want to jump in and start playing the way that they would apples to apples or uh, the resistance or something.
1: Well, you can tell that when you look at the incredible degree of success that Evil Hat has had with Fate and over and above the fact that Evil Hat are really really good at running a game company I mean really scarily good at running a game company they're also really scarily good at growing their audience and that audience is growing into what you know you what we would have said back in the day back in first and second edition would have said was a ridiculously simple ridiculously nothing of a of a game system but obviously there is an audience for something that is that simple and that pure and that strong, and when you look at, the, at them winning the gold any for Best Rules, that thank you for
0: actually turning my non-segway into the Ennies into an actual segway into, into the, the Ennies. Ennies.
1: Well, you know, we we we, we get there. That's our. We, we
0: went around the mountain, but we got there. You know,
1: this is not about this is not about the direct route here at Ken and Robin talk about stuff. This is the no, scenic not- route. Not definition. with our Sclera McKinney numbers. No, no, no. The Sclera McKinney number for the direct route is, is well out of our, out of our grasp at this point. But that's a popular award. And you can tell, for example, that Pathfinder won a ton of those awards and, uh, uh, Monty Cook, who is definitely of the crunchier design group. Although again, I think it's interesting that Numenera and The Strange are both, are, are both moving, you know, in a simplering direction. But fate is simpler than, than them all and fate won the best supplement for the fate system toolkit that, that was the silver it won best rules uh that was the gold of all things uh fate well, i mean evil hat was up there almost as often as monty was and that was uh a well-deserved because it's a great batch of products and b it's a tribute to the fact that there are you know tens of thousands of people for whom that kind of simple fast informal mediated at the table and move on play has become the core experience, the the thing that they're looking for.
0: And it made it a fun evening to sit and watch because other years, uh, Pathfinder and its gigantic fan base have meant that you could kind of see where things were going to go, because of course the endies start out as a juried award, and then in their final phase turn into a a fan-voted award. So the entire intention of them is that they should reflect the size of various fan bases that doesn't always make it the uh, most unpredictable of awards nights, but
1: here... Certainly when you get into the big categories of best game or whatever. Right.
0: But, you know, when the two-way battle is between three uh, combatants, (laughs) there's there's more room for somebody to get suddenly cocked on the head and you know, sometimes fate would win the gold and Montu would win the uh, the silver and then it would flip and uh, it was uh, an exciting uh, evening. Uh, Hillfolk was up for a number of things, but of course, at our level of uh, awareness, it's a uh, shucks, nice to be nominated thing. Although I did discover that if you're nominated for enough any's uh, a couple of days later, people perhaps with their own Sclera McKinney ratings, I uh, think you've won some of them.
1: Yeah, they, well, it's just a way to bet. Exactly, yeah.
0: So that uh, that was nice too, but we did get to bound onto the stage. Yeah,
1: speaking of anys, and speaking of the podcast, Robin and I would like to thank all of you because I know that all of you went out and, and voted for us, and all of your uh, mothers and guys who you work with, and strangers on the train with unlocked iPods. Uh, Dr. And- repairman, I believe there's a big got a big chunk of the duct repair vote, the duct repair vote. Yes. Very big. We're very big with uh, HVAC in general, but I think that, um, I think it's, I don't think at all. I know it's great that we won the gold any for best podcast. And, uh, you know, we, we promise to get better and better at that, uh, at, at our acceptance bit if we keep winning.
0: Yeah. So thanks everybody who uh, voted for us. We also got a lot of love throughout the show for the podcast, uh, for which. Uh, I am very grateful, and I know you are, Ken, as well. Absolutely. One thing that we learn when we go to conventions is that uh, the food hut is even more popular than I think. So yes, right. I'm going to have to schedule some more uh, food hut topics in my uh, uh, mix of topics coming out. We did do a live show, yeah. uh, which I think went very well, and uh, we'll be dropping that in to cover the day when I would otherwise be... Uh, at the film festival so I'm not sure off the top of my head what episode that is but there'll be a few more episodes before we uh, drop the live show and that will give one of our questioners time to use our answer on his game group uh, before it becomes uh, public knowledge so uh, be warned uh, if you know that your uh, GM was uh, at the Ken and Robin live thing but I had a a huge blast doing that we had a bit of a uh, locational snafu at the beginning but our uh, audience remained in good humor despite the adversity, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing that, and we'll have to make sure we keep doing that in the future.
1: Yeah, I think that at uh, doing the live show at conventions is not only great fun, I mean, it's just really, really, I mean, the whole reason the podcast exists is because Robin and I have fun talking to each other, and it turns out we have fun talking to each other in front of a crowd that volunteered to be there, too. So, and I think it's good for the podcast. Like you say, we we sort of get a a, a handle on what sorts of uh parts of the Ken and Robin mythos that people have uh have twigged to or have been inspired by so it's... Uh, it was a
0: large crowd and there was a high awareness of the fine details Good. of the podcast so so that was uh, great look forward for to them. that those of you who were not uh with us at the show so uh, speaking of other panels, I happily did the Feng shui two intro panel where we showed off pretty art and I answered questions about where the design is going, and we'll be recycling some audio from that in future episodes. Perhaps he strokes his chin thoughtfully during the upcoming Kickstarter, which we announced as having a target start date of September 17th. Uh, Those of you who are looking at my calendar on Google, and why are you doing that, will note that that that's the first Wednesday after the film festival, so uh, I will have a few days to let my uh, Square McKinney rating uh, return to normal before I have my month of frantically refreshing the page, but we're uh, looking forward to getting that out in front of people and, uh, we're going to have a, a, really fun Kickstarter, which I'm sure I will regale you with more either through recycled audio or, uh, in a segment, uh, actually here on the show, we did manage to pick the loudest ambient noise room, I think in the convention center, uh, to record it. So the, uh, there may be some, uh, hissing on the track, which is not created by the trains literally running over over the room, but by the world's loudest air conditioner. But uh, still, I hope you'll uh, bear with us when we recycle that audio later on. Ken, you had some uh, paneling uh, as your, with your guest of honor hat on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one that I uh, uh, most wanted to catch, although I was too dutiful to do so, because I want to stay behind the booth, was your uh, Pendragon panel, Uh, with Greg Stafford. I was lucky enough to see Greg come up to the uh, booth at one point when you were there, and the two of you exchanged some uh, deep knowledge of the story of Sir Wolfram. And then when Greg left, I saw what the physical manifestation of Ken happiness turned up to 11 was, and you, uh, you make these little flipper gestures.
1: I only make the flipper gestures amongst those who are truly worthy of them, which means pretty much Greg Stafford. Yes. Greg is obviously, uh, if you don't know who Greg Stafford is and you're listening to this panel, you can rush right out and fix that by buying King Arthur Pendragon or any of his uh, uh, Glorantha-related items that are out there around. Um, That
0: first Gen Con in a decade.
1: uh, Yes, yes. We almost had him last Gen Con, but he had to have uh, surgery, and so that... Slowed it down. And so this Gen Con, it was uh, a deal where his uh, cohorts at Moon Design wrote and said, is there a way that we could get Greg to be on the guest of honor list, even though it's too late and the, uh, and the deadline has passed? And I said, yes, yes, there is. And uh, then Greg was all well, Ken, I don't want to fill out the form. Can you fill out the form for me? And I said, sure, Greg, <laughs> happy to do it. And on the form are the things that uh, you, the guest of honor, volunteer to do in terms of panels, panels you think would be fun. And I said, I know what Greg wants to do. Greg wants to talk about Pendragon with Ken Haidt. Uh And he he, th- he, th- he thinks that would be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so, sure enough, there it was on the uh, on the schedule. Uh, Funny how that happened. Yes, uh, thanks to uh, the, the miracle that is being on the committee. So we did uh, an hour with Greg on the topic of Pendragon. Uh, Thirty years after. Uh, on the grounds that we don't know if he'll be at Gen Con 2015. He may be off on a vision quest or climbing a mountain or uh, battling demons to save America or, or Well, at the beginning of thing. the
0: show, he was saying that this was going to be his last hurrah, that this was going to be his last Gen Con. But at the end of Gen Con, he was saying, you know, maybe I need to come back. So yeah. well, let's um, all
1: keep our fingers crossed. We, we We made sure to show him as much love as we possibly could. And so this was the 30 years on what is pendragon why is it still ahead of the of the field what what sort of design considerations went into it you know just the sort of questions that you would ask greg stafford about, about pendragon if you could keep your breathing and voice under control and yeah. so that was great it was it was uh, everything that you would want it to be i think uh, one of Greg's many uh, servants and minions recorded it, so it'll probably be up on the internet somewhere. And uh, you were kind enough
0: to solicit a question from me,
1: even though yes. I was uh, not attending the panel. I um, uh, I got uh, Sir Robin of Laws' question on uh, what aspect of the Arthurian corpus still mystifies Greg, and of course Greg, being Greg, took that question and expanded and blew it up into a mythic proportions when he went on a disquisition about the mystery of the Grail and how um, it remains confounding to all and yet fundamentally clear because it's a perfect myth. And it was a beautiful Greg moment. It was a beautiful Grail moment. It was a beautiful uh, Pendragon moment. We talked about uh, the design uh, bravery of Pendragon. We talked about the passions. We talked about uh, the traits. We talked about um, uh, the, the the unified nature of the game system and whether or not that mapped to the medieval unified nature of the cosmos. I feel uh, every time I read Pendragon or every time I I look at Pendragon. I feel like I'm looking at you know, if C.S. Lewis had designed a role-playing game, that that would have been the the design aesthetic he would have used. That everything sort of folds over and matches itself in that beautiful, beautiful system. It, it's it was it was a great panel and it was a great, uh, it's it's a great game. I recommend getting the game and then listening to the panel when it when it drops. It was it was terrific.
0: Did you have other guest of honor style panels that you want to bring to our attention?
1: Let's see. What did I have? I had a horror panel, which I always have, and that was great fun. Keith Baker, Andrew Hackard, and Shane Hensley, and I all talking about sort of horror tips and tricks. I've done that a bunch of different times, but it's like your you know GM tips panel. It it always seems to be necessary to uh, to sort of give people the permission to run horror the way that they suspect it should be run. Sometimes you got to play freebird, man. Sometimes you got to play freebird. It was great fun to be on a panel with Ray Wininger on dungeon craft on how oh, to Oh man, I didn't even run into Ray. Darn it. And the goal was if you're the first if this is your first time running D&D, what do you do? How do you what do you, what what mistakes do you avoid? And then what uh positives do you put in? And that was Ray sort of just took that over and uh made uh Keith Baker and I jump back and forth through hoops for the entertainment of the audience. So that was pretty great. And then uh, the other uh panel that we did as part of the guest of honor track uh, we did sort of an old farts reminisce panel that turned into old farts predict the future panel. But since <laughs> one of the old farts on the table was Jordan Wiseman, that turned out that was one of those panels that I I sort of felt like I was in the audience as well as up on the on the on the table just listening to Jordan talk about where we've been and where we're going and what he sees coming up. So that was that was well worth doing. And apparently that's the first time Jordan and I have ever met.
0: And so was he seeing a, a convergence with uh, mobile and tablet?
1: Oh uh, yeah, he's well. He's obviously he's got a. A mobile and tablet, uh, driven, uh, miniatures game, Golem Arcana, that's out now. So he sees that as the next space. He, he saw it several years ago and has now done it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the part of being Jordan is that knowing the time to do the thing that you saw several years ago. And I think that this is that thing. Um, so I'm, you know, obviously the Golem Arcana guys were all being, you know, worked off their legs. Uh, they were being slammed at the, uh, at, at the show. And Jordan seemed very, very positive about it. And we were talking about, more of those sorts of blendings of, of delivery and play experience.
0: Now, one of the, we were talking earlier about how the big release at the show model has been displaced by the, here's the thing that we uh, just shipped to Kickstarter backers model, but uh, there is one exception to that was that the fifth edition D and D landed at the show, but it landed in a way that is quite different than previous launches in that, uh, like last year, D&D sort of sequestered itself into its own mini exhibit hall mm-hmm. so that if you were super tuned into that, uh, I got to speak to Mike briefly and he was run off his feet and uh, really happy with the reception it was getting, and uh, which was not a foregone conclusion, of course, because... So many different people have so many different visions of what the D&D feel ought to be and how the rules ought to realize it. But it seems like there was uh, a lot of excitement for it in that sphere, but it didn't bubble over the way that it did back in the days when the TSR or uh, later WOTC booth was the anchor of the main exhibit hall. Yeah,
1: To to, to, to believe that there would have been a show at which the new Dungeons & Dragons came out and it didn't drop into the middle of everything like an atom bomb. I mean, if you weren't looking for it, you didn't necessarily see everyone carrying their their DMGs everywhere. Or their you br- saw
0: the giant la- line of Pathfinder uh, fans each morning, uh, but the D and D thing, which admittedly
1: is, they were right near our booth. So
0: yeah, well, but they were also you know snaking around the exhibit hall. They were right. Uh, yeah. They were what everybody was seeing, and. Uh, the uh the whole D&D 5th edition uh thing was in its own uh separate redoubt on a far hill.
1: Yeah, it was it was its it's an interesting uh ecosystem now that we're moving into because we've got uh new D&D which is going to be able to take on Pathfinder on something like an equal basis, one assumes. But there's a lot of space for a lot of other F20 games, a 13th Age. Obviously, we sold really really well at the show. There was a huge number of people running events. Uh, it's in as good a position as anything is. Monty obviously has Numenera, which is the same feel, but a different... Uh, it, it's like one of the old, you know, uh, D&D worlds, but it's got its own... Yes, it's it's sort of a, a spiritual air, though not technically F20. Yeah, and then um, you've also got a lot of other designers are coming out with a lot of D&D-like F20 games, as well as, you know, the old-school people who are bringing out more and more Old school stuff. The the OSR continues to move from strength to strength. I'm I'm sure that if I'd been even able to get to that end of the universe, the the Goodman Games booth would have been you know doing land office business. Everybody else. So there seems to be a lot of uh, there. There are either a lot more hills, or that hill is a lot bigger than we used to think back in the day when it was going to be. Well, only one guy can be king. I, I think there we may be seeing a, a seven hills of role playing experience coming out.
0: Yeah, I, for a couple of years, I guess I haven't had the chance to, or I haven't availed myself of the, or made the uh, space to walk around the hall. uh, So I always figured that, uh, you know, during show hours, uh, an hour, half hour, where I could be there behind the booth telling people about my games and signing them for people is an hour that I should use for that purpose. I did get around the hall before it opened in the morning where, uh, you know, in the hour where exhibitors get to poke around and uh, the, uh, uh, it hasn't fully opened to the punters. And just the scale of it uh, just dropped my jaw that, you know, how many really, you know, large booth spaces are uh, out there for all of the various uh, board game and card game companies. And just the, the size of everything, you can see it not just in the attendance figures, but the size of the hall. And even like those, uh, the uh, the geek chic guys, the ones who make those incredibly lavish wooden gaming tables that cost more than you or I got paid for the book that you're playing around <laughs> that table. Um, and, you know, and not a little more either. No, no. <laughs> Considerably <laughs> more. Um, that, uh, you know, they had a huge space for their incredible uh, luxury product. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that space is not going to get uh, any bigger. They already built a big new convention center for uh, our, our use and the use of other conventions. And uh, so... Uh, I, I hope that in ten years that we're not talking about now as the glory days, not just of uh, the early wave of the role-playing Renaissance, but I I hope we're not going to get to the point where it becomes uh, you know so big that it's sort of uh, overwhelming and and assaultive and even harder to navigate the way that uh, uh, San Diego seems to be.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what the carrying capacity is for. Gen Con, I mean, to say nothing of the carrying capacity of Indianapolis, in theory, you know, you could move Gen Con to a bigger city with more convention space, and then you could fill that up. But at some point, I mean, there there was one point where I was physically unable to move through a hallway in the convention center, which has never happened to me before at Gen Con. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I'd budgeted 10 minutes to go from place one to place two, and it was 20 minutes, because there were, as I said, when I, Squows out the other side that apparently Gen Con was cosplaying as Dragon Con for a little while.
0: Yeah, you, you now, if you're going from your booth to a seminar, you have to budget an extra 10 minutes for a human traffic jam.
1: Yeah, and then before we just budgeted that time because we would run into people we wanted to talk to, but now it, we're just running into people, period, end of yeah, story. Yes, so
0: you're seeing your, your friends and colleagues crushed in a wave of humanity and being yeah. a, a born boring... Which, is, which is
1: all good. I mean, it's vastly better than than shows where you know, you can literally see the sands running out the end of the hourglass, and you're just hoping to sell enough to uh, not have to uh, sell plasma to get on the plane. But the you know the problems of success are better than the problems of failure, but they are nonetheless problems. I It, it seems kind of uh, ridiculous to borrow that kind of trouble, though. I mean, right now, that, so we're at 60,000, or we're at 56,000 now. We can probably get to 60,000 without really noticing it. Maybe the 70,000 or 80,000 point is where it starts to Become unseemly. But I think that if we're at that level, it's not going to be at the expense of, of role playing or at the expense of, of Pelgrane. I think that we're going to be as integral a part of it as we want to be.
0: So I guess we can maybe shift to a little food hut talk at this point. Now, one of the, uh, restaurants, uh, the hotel restaurants that I thought was stepping up its game, I think sadly is, uh, a little less impressive this time around the, uh, 1913 restaurant at the Omni, which, uh, a couple of years ago in an effort to be more of a restaurant went to all sort of, uh, locally sourced foods. Uh, unfortunately there, uh, not doing as much with those ingredients as they could be now and it was uh uh, sad to see one of the few great options kind of knock down a notch or two to me the big revelation is the food trucks uh, which are you know on a lower level but and you know most of the time when i really need a lunch uh you know i uh wind up just going and getting one of those dreadful convention hall slices because that takes me five minutes instead of having to go and get a big lineup at at prime time. But it was really great to see on the Wednesday night that all the food trucks were there already at a time when there wasn't a giant lineup. And Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to avail ourselves of that again before the Ennies, which is essential because there isn't really time to go and have a a sit-down meal. But, man, that has made a huge difference in the availability of a decent food in what is otherwise a, a wasteland of high-end uh, chain places.
1: Yeah, the the food truck experience, and you can game it, right? You can you you can go on at slightly off hours. You can pick a food truck that is not necessarily the immediately slammed one. And that, that's a Renner Nietzsche game, isn't it? Uh, pick the food truck. Well, it sort of is. I mean, there's a food truck on the cover of the box, certainly. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, um,
1: it's lightly themed. It's lightly themed. So lightly. So very lightly themed. But the other thing that is good about the food scene in Indianapolis is that they are trying to up their game a little bit. Because we did not bring the lovely and talented Beth uh, this this year. I was not able to make an excuse to go all the way over to the circle for the really good barbecue that is downtown. As opposed to the phenomenal barbecue that is out of town or on the very far north side of, of Indianapolis. But but that barbecue place is great.
0: It is a long, expensive cam ride to the outskirts.
1: Yes. But Alan Varney uh, came by and told me he would buy me dinner at wherever I found for him to do so. So I put a little thought into that, and we went to the Osteria Pronto, which is the Italian restaurant in the uh, in the JW Marriott. And that was – it's far from the best Italian food I've ever had. But for hotel restaurant, it was really, really good. Um, and I had the, the and since uh, it's a newer, higher end hotel, yeah, you would, you, you would hope for that, certainly. You would hope for that. And yeah, and since they bring in, one assumes, people on, on business expense accounts who are used to eating properly. The, 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 for example, my osabuco with the, the saffron risotto around it was, was certainly very, very tasty. And, uh, everyone else seemed to enjoy their food. Uh, again, it may not be a every day at the show type thing, but it's, but it's nice to have another option besides, Well, I can either go back and have another steak, because you know the steak will be good wherever you get it, but at some level, eating four steaks in a week is probably counterindicated by puling modern medical science, and certainly, just in terms of your palate, you might want to, you know, change it up once or twice.
0: So, Ken, let's say that you had a time machine. Let's say. Let's say. How would you go back into time, or even forward into time and, you know, create a ripple effect or something, to uh, convince hotels that... Uh, staying open to real bar hours uh, would significantly improve their uh, profits and therefore would be worth doing it was so frustrating last year finally we got through to one of the hotels the Omni actually bar stayed open proper bar hours and clearly just on a visual level increased their sales many fold by uh, being one of the uh, the only hotel in the basic hotel zone that was uh, serving after, uh, the usual ridiculous hour yet they backslid this year. And again, we're back to uh, being closed. How would you change this, uh, horrible rent in the timeline?
1: Well, I think that what you have to do for, for something like that to happen is you have to sort of convince the, the slow minded scenesters who operate hotels that they are losing out in competition with their fellow hotels so if you can get one of them to do it on the regular then that will draw the other ones in because they'll worry that they're you know giving money to their competitors and maybe the way to do it is if you're going back in time maybe you you can go back in time to that first gen con when everyone is sort of trying to let their patterns set in amber and you just you know you can use uh I I probably could have done this, actually, at the time if I'd thought about it. Um, Talk to uh, Owen, who is the guy who sort of is the interface between Gen Con and and the hotels, and say, look, Owen, let's get one hotel bar to stay open until three. Let's make that a a part of the, the condition of being You know, getting a a good Gen Con deal is that you do that. And then when that one bar does it and they make huge amounts of money, that propagates to other bars and say, oh my God, this is the new reality for Gen Con. Just like the Steak and Shake, the first year we came there, they were out of bacon. But (laughs) after that, I'll bet they they haven't run out of bacon again. Or the Ram that keeps going from strength to strength, right? That, That first Gen Con, they said, let's just stay open 24 hours, even though we can't serve after a given amount of time. And that has done so well that they've just upped their game every year. I think if you got one hotel that was doing that in 2002 or 2003, whatever the first year was, uh, that might've created a, a a wave of, this is the new reality. We have to do it. Um, and obviously the, the financial rewards would be there, but, uh, but yeah, just going back in time and telling me to tell Owen might have been enough and certainly failing that. I think that that's exactly the kind of thing that can be solved with my traditional mechanism.
0: So it's not that like they've set up some sort of anti-capitalism field that uh, no, not leads in Indiana. them to leave money on the table uh, year no, after if year. The, if
1: the convention was in Hyde Park, that would absolutely be the anti-capitalism field. But it's but it's Indiana, for God's sake. They're, they're simple red state people who love money, uh, as they should. And so, therefore, they... They should be educable with with a, with a profit and loss uh, statement like that.
0: Well, I guess it's time to start uh, thinking of things that we didn't think of yet. I guess it would be ungrateful of me uh, not to also thank the uh, folks who voted for Hillfolk in the Indie Games Awards, which was Absolutely. Uh, yeah. enormously uh, gratifying because I didn't know I was up for it or even qualified for it, but as a creator-owned game, it uh, is an indie game and it won Best Game and best support, uh, so uh, that was...
1: Uh, <laughs> it would be very uh, really... hard to determine how it couldn't have won best support, given that it comes with 30 more <laughs> supports, and then there's another 33 right there next to it, and then there's the ongoing, what is series pitch per month that's on the Pell website.
0: Uh, yes, and uh, uh, from uh, among many others, uh, many uh, luminaries of the story gaming uh, scene, like Megway Baker and uh, Emily uh, uh, Boss and uh, Jason Morningstar and Jason Petra, and a, a long a list of uh, great people who, you know, get that uh, vibe as uh, well as anybody. So I'm very grateful to uh, everybody from that uh, scene who uh, voted in those awards, and uh, means a lot to me. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I should thank the people who voted uh, for the bits of me that that won uh, the other any that I that I sort of picked up a bit of because uh, Octon Cthulhu, uh, the GM's, uh, the Keeper's Guide, got an any for best writing, I think it was. And I wrote a page and a half of that. And so for that page and a half, uh, I thank you, uh, for voting for it. That was, that was very gratifying. and It was even more gratifying to see Lynn, uh, get to accept, uh, the award for all of her hard work wrangling people, uh, like me. Uh, and that was, that was very great.
0: Yes. My, my longtime friend, uh, uh Lynn Hardy, it was, uh, it was very funny to watch her go up because at first she, uh, what is Ken doing on the stage seemed to be her expression, but then uh, you were uh, there to uh, help her out when she uh, ran out of words. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that, well, of course, not, has not, always been a problem for me. <laughs> one of your uh, signal uh, qualities. Um, so, any other uh, experiences or uh, adventures or uh, ideas that uh, came out of the show before we uh, wrap and uh, uh, hope that our uh, Sclera McKinney uh, ratings start to return to normal throughout the week?
1: Well, I did do two. Delta Green panels, which were great fun, and uh, even more fun than that, and no offense to anyone who came to the panels, but you'll understand what I mean. I got to play Delta Green with Dennis Detwiller and Greg Stolzi and Shane Ivey uh, and Tom Marin as, as part of the Delta Green sort of ongoing in-company playtest. Tell I, me about your character, Ken. My character was... I, I played two characters. I played an FBI profiler who was sort of a normal Delta Green guy, and I played a hitman who is under witness protection who has... When the Delta Green feels that the problem can be solved by killing someone, they sneak him out of witness protection and they bring him somewhere and say, "You kill that guy, and we promise not to accidentally tell the people you 're in hiding from where you are
0: that 's uh not unlike the premise of that great Filipino crime movie on the job where they get the people job. out of prison to go do that
1: fantastic um yeah so that that was a, that was a really great experience and obviously it's it 's terrific uh fun to. To, to to hang around with the the, the what I still think of was the pagans even though the the arc dreams um, but but those guys the Delta Green team and to be a little part of the Delta Green team is very gratifying as well so that was that was another great thing and so have.
0: how are the the rules shaping up for that are they are they a BRP variant or a completely
1: they are a BRP variant and current discussion is between uh, between a, a number of designers uh, <laughs> there there is a situation where everyone has their ideas to what sort of variant And I'm fairly sure I I can't do the hilarious bit that that Dennis did. But (laughs) but let's just say that game designer A wants there to be a Rifle forty four percent skill, and game designer B wants there to be a M four carbine forty four percent, but only if your strength is thus and your dex is such, and plus ten mm. percent for the tack of rail. Of the
0: various pagans, which game designer is on which side? I
1: can't. And cannot, game designer C, I we're are not done yet. Wants rifle to be equivalent to your love for your mother, and when your <laughs> love for your mother diminishes, so too does your rifle skill. <laughs> And I have now um, masked it to all listeners except those who know anything, anything about, about the three lead game group. designers yes. <laughs> in Delta Green. But I've been brought in to sort of be the, um, uh, the 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 kindergarten teacher who says no one gets to play in the sandbox until you've all agreed who gets to the dinosaur. now so pagans, now yes, pagans, now, now you're all pretty. But yeah, it's a it it it's a glorious uh, experience, obviously, in getting to even tangentially bit attached to Delta Green is, is pretty magical. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was pretty great. I, I love those guys as people, and I love them as game designers, obviously. And it's just terrific. Um, I, you know, again, you would consider any game, any convention of triumph if you got to spend 10 minutes talking to Dennis or or Greg or Shane and to get to play with them, you know, for two or three hours, Delta Green, that, that, would that, that, you know, that's not quite up there with getting to talk to Greg for, for an hour about Pendragon, but it's still pretty great.
0: And, of course, uh, various schemes were hatched, which will perhaps schemes come into hatched. fruition at future GenCast. And so, of course, we'll be uh, uh, dropping uh, hints about those and then uh, making the full revelations in the fullness of time. But uh, there's some uh, super exciting uh, things that are currently in the top secret uh, box.
1: Yes. The, the hidden hut, the, the, the hidden hut. secret hut, the, yes. the
0: soon to be revealed hut. But I think other than that, uh, we might be accused of tarrying if we continue to, uh, speak further of Gen Con 2014. Although it's, it's sad. I, I want to hold on to it. It was such a, such a beautiful Gen Con. It might be the best one ever.
1: So, so big and grand and, and, and fun and delightful. I, I yeah, I, they're all great. Obviously Gen Con has been magnificent since I started going to it as a, Fresh-faced, twenty-five-year-old or whatever I was, um, uh, with a twenty-dollar train ticket from Chicago to Milwaukee. But now, and a song in your heart. It's such exactly and simple, simple love and and beauty and optimism in my eyes. You had a bindle uh, with a piece of apple pie in it. Just just my percentile dice, so that I could run, uh, call of Cthulhu for Chaosium, in the hopes of someday getting to uh, touch an actual game designer, and now We I
0: even have one. a healthy Chaosium again, Ken.
1: Yes! Again, thanks to the magic of Kickstarter. Yeah. It turns out that if uh, Chaosium just sort of pokes its weedy head up and says, hey guys, give us a whole lot of money, and eventually you'll get a product, everyone who loves Chaosium, which is all right-thinking people say, you got it, Chaosium, here you go. And I saw the big giant box that is going to be the the new uh, Orient Express game. And It's just going to it's going to be vast and and glorious and beautiful. And I saw the set of cars simulacrum. Dustin Wright is back uh, at the at the at the Chaosium booth, which is a, a joy and a delight all of itself.
0: It's like the band has all been gotten back together, and we haven't even all talked about Santi back. being there with uh, yeah, Cthulhu with Wars his Cthulhu and Wars. what a jaw dropping uh, physical artifact uh, that game is, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glorantha fans there were big announcements for them there was uh, Sandy's next thing is going to be an equivalent God's War board game with mm-hmm. equivalent giant miniatures for uh, Orlanth and the uh, uh, Storm the, the Lunar Queen and Storm Bowls and uh Uh, So that'll just be an incredible jaw-dropping thing. Uh, Thirteenth Age is doing a Glorantha adaptation that sort of, uh, I guess I don't know if that is a secret or not, so I won't say it, but uh, uh, they're uh, announcing a Kickstarter soon, in which I'm sure they will uh, drop all sorts of knowledge about that. So that's uh, very exciting. That will give uh, Glorantha fans who want to come at it from the F20 direction a way to do that and there's no better foundation for that than jonathan and rob's uh, loosey-goosey easy handling 13th age that's right uh all sorts of cross-fertilization in the way that the original wave of the foundational wave of role-playing things were all kind of siloed and people were protecting their uh, own little islands but now in the sort of the post ogl age when everybody realizes that cross-pollinization helps everybody we're really entering an age where everybody gets to come and play in everybody else's sandbox with uh, I think really exciting results. So that And that again goes to that thing we were talking about with whatever flavor of gaming appeals to you, there are just many more experiences and many ways to fine-tune what it is that you want out of gaming because so many people are working together to create so many different versions of ways to experience uh, great worlds like Lorentha or rule sets like You know the F twenty diaspora, so you know whatever flavor of F twenty you want now, uh, you can have it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So much stuff. Uh, uh, Was there was there a thing that you got at the show? Uh, I mean, we could literally just keep talking about Gen Con. Maybe not as long as we were at Gen Con, but for a long, long time. But was there? Uh, I don't even
0: try to get things at this show anymore because uh, you know I'm just so crazy busy. The the new a uh, Firefly uh, game was out, and I got that and all its a multicolored glory because I've done uh, story design for an upcoming set of linked adventures, uh, which will be coming out, I think, sometime next year. And so that looks really beautiful. But unless, you know, someone specifically comes by to press something into my hands, I don't uh, even really uh, have the time to go check out and see what's great the way I used to be able to do.
1: Yeah, I, I, I got a copy of Weird Wars Rome. Uh, which has been out for a while, but I didn't have it. But it, it was now in a beautiful little uh, paperback, uh, full-color paperback size. Uh, it, it's great, of course, to do Roman horror. And, uh, you know, that was... I, I got a bunch of stuff, but that's the one that I'm immediately thinking of, probably, because that's what I'm reading right now uh, on the couch as I try and get my uh, my index down. But yeah, we again, we could do another hour on this, but I think that at some point we must, if only to maintain continuity with previous episodes, slowly and sadly, uh, drive and, or fly away from the travel advisory. Oh, I, I feel like I'm hugging you at the airport all over again. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful time, but without Will Hindmarsh there to take the, the sting off of it, he's not there to, to drive me home and, and talk about uh film and gossip and brilliance uh, the way that he, he is, uh, you know, when, when I have him right handy. So there you well, go. You still have Virgil. I do have Virgil. Virgil, of course. Not, not nearly the interlocular that uh, that will is, but if anything, even uh, more darling. So there you go. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Stone Skin Press, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is
0: by James Semple. Keep us in post-convention analgesics by hitting the donate button at KenanRobbinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Build awareness of your game Kickstarter book. Or convention by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height.
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.